Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2021, we're running our annual Radiothon when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist Woolless Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Hello, this is Anarchist Woolless Week. Right. Isn't this amazing? Here we are on Anarchist World this week. Now, I've got a confession to make, a very bad confession. This program is pre-recorded. I'm splitting two. I'm speaking to all our listeners around Australia, except those listeners from 3CR land in Melbourne. This week, I'm involved in Mission Impossible. I am trying to raise $15,000 Community radio station 3CR on air to keep uh, the Anarchist World this week on air for another 12 months. Now, before I get stuck into the program, if during the program you'd like to donate, and just remember, every donation over $2 to Community Radio 3CR is a legal, legitimate tax deduction. Do what celebrities and the rich and powerful do. Legally minimise your tax by giving to organisations which you think make a difference. Now, you can donate very simply. You can ring right now on 039 419 and you'll speak to somebody and you'll be able to donate. Or you can go to donate forward slash 3cr.org.au. That's donate forward slash 3cr.org.au. I'd like to thank all the wonderful folk at the Community Radio Network which keep the Anarchist World This Week broadcast across Australia. And as I said before, unfortunately this program has to be pre-recorded as I'm in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne as you hear, listen to this program, trying to raise money to keep the radio station, 3CR Community Radio Station based in Melbourne on air for another year. Independent radio. That's what community radio is all about. It's about independent radio. It's about radio that's independent of government, radio that's independent of the corporate sector, radio which uh, deals with community concerns. Now, Anarchist World this week. What is anarchism? Simple concept. Anarchos without rulers. The anarchist struggle is the struggle to create a society without rulers. That's right, a society without rulers. How do you create a society without rulers? Well, you look at what gives rulers the ability to determine the lives of billions of people. And what gives them that ability is inequalities in power and wealth. So if you're involved in the struggle to devolve or share power, if you're involved in the struggle to hold wealth in common and use it for the common good, well then, whether you like it or not, if we use the classical definition of what anarchism is, you are an anarchist, something to be proud of. A human being that's willing to make respons- take responsibility for their actions, who is willing to work for the benef- benefit of all, not just for themselves, not just for their families, not just for their neighbours, not just for their kids and grandkids, but the community as a whole. You are a true internationalist. Now, as I said before, this program has been pre-recorded, so obviously I'm not able to give an up-to-date analysis of what's happening uh, in Australia today. So what I'd like to do 
uh, during the program is look at what's been happening in Australia over the last few years. And I think a lot of important issues have been raised in this country over the last few years, uh, and and these are issues that will not go away. And what COVID-19 has done is it has highlighted the divisions in Australian society. Now, traditionally we're told that we live in some type of egalitarian community, that class doesn't matter in Australia. Class is fundamental to the Australian experience. It's fundamental. But I'm not talking about class in its usual form. I'm not talking about class. What we need to do is we need to reassess what class is and we need to reassess what gives people the ability to exercise power. In a capitalist society, which is a society based on private investment for private profit, class is based on the concept of having disposable income. It's not based on what you do, your professional qualifications, whether you're a white-collar or blue-collar worker, whether you're a self-employed, whether you're a micro-employer, but it's based on disposable income. If at the end of the week or the end of the month you have disposable income which you can use to invest and use this country's very nice investment-friendly laws, you, irrespective of what type of work you do, you are part of the investment class. You can be a tradesperson, you can be a doctor, but if at the end of the week you have more money than you need for your living expenses and you use that money to invest, whether you invest in buying a second home, whether you invest in the stock market, buying shares, whether you invest in art, you are part of the investment class. And during the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation era, which we have glided through over the last 40 years, we have seen the expansion of the Australian investment class. And the Australian investment class is not that 1% of society that owns the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication, which we are all aware of. But the Australian investment class is that 8% of Australians who have disposable income to use this country's investment-friendly laws to invest and make a profit, not through their labour, but through their money. So what are the class divisions in Australian society? We all know about the 1% that own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication. And all you have to do is look through the 200 Australian rich list to understand that section of society is a very small section, but it does make extraordinary profits by using other people's labour and by using this country's resources for their own benefit. Whether they're publicly listed on the stock exchange or whether it's a private company, it's about making profits at the expense of the population as a whole. Now, this particular class, the one percenters, this particular class is fundamental in creating the type of society that we have become. It is fundamental because the power they are able to exercise over the political process means that people who run policies, as we saw with the Rudd Labor government, which threaten their economic interests, find it almost impossible to be elected and find it impossible to put legislation through Parliament which ensures that they pay their fair share of tax and pull their weight. When people talk about lifters and leaners, these are the paramount 
leaners in our society. When you have people who can count their wealth in billions because they've been given a permit to exploit this country's natural resources, which theoretically belong to all of us, including obviously the original owners, this country's First Nations people, you can understand the influence they have. And those of you who think that social media has changed everything, it's changed nothing. The political agenda, the social agenda, the cultural agenda of the day is set by the legacy media. That's why Murdoch continues to invest in the loss-making Australian newspaper because it may lose money superficially, but in terms of determining policy among policy makers, it is fundamental. And what the legacy media does is it decides what will be the issue of the day. And when you go to social media, radio, television, you'll find the majority of cases, all they're following is the articles which have appeared in social media, whether it's in the you know, paper form or whether it's on social media. But whatever's, whatever's appeared in legacy media, you know, appears in social media, appears on radio, television, free for air, and the list goes on and on. So you've got the one percenters, which is about 1% of the population. Then you've got the eight percenters, those Australians of disposable income. And you cannot define them by the type of work they do. Many tradespeople at the end of the day have disposable income. Many doctors at the end of the day have no disposable income, especially bulk billing doctors. And the list goes on and on. So you cannot put somebody in a particular category dependent on the type of job they do. And the division between white-collar worker and blue-collar worker disappeared eons ago, although people still talk about white-collar workers and blue-collar workers. Then you've got what I would describe as this nation's working class. And the working class is all those people who are involved in wage slavery, all those people who get a wage at the end of the week, whether you're in insecure work, which is part-time, whether you're in full-time paid work with all the perks of a full-time position, holiday pay, sick pay, and the list goes on and on. The reality is you pay your taxes when you receive your payment at the end of the month, at the end of the fortnight, at the end of the week. You are part of that working class which uses all its income to survive. Pay the rent, pay a mortgage, pay for the kids' education, pay for the occasional holiday, you know, and pay all the bills which continue to come in with monotonous regularity in our society. So at the end of the day, although you may be in a partnership with somebody else and you're raising kids together, at the end of the day you'll find you've got no disposable income. But you can pay your way, as long as you've got a job. Because as soon as you lose that job, what happens is you lose the ability to pay those debts. And the majority of people, about, it'll be about 50, 60%, and we'll look at the figures later on, are part of that group. Then you have what I call people on Social Security Benefits. Now, I think most Australians understand how many people live on Social Security benefits in this country, and I'm talking about old age pensions, disability support pensions. I'm talking about unemployment benefits, students, the list goes on and on. About a third of Australians, that's one in three Australians, rely on Social Security benefits to survive. Let's say about 35%. That's about 35%. So most people on Social Security benefits, especially if they don't own their own home, basically lead a hand-to-mouth existence. And I'm sick and tired of people telling me that people on Social Security benefits don't pay tax. They do pay tax. They pay They pay tax through the goods and services tax. They pay extraordinary amount of taxes 
in comparison to what they receive in their social security benefits. And it's quite extraordinary that many people on social security benefits, especially those who don't own their own homes, have to jump through all these loops, hoops I should say, hoops, in order to receive that social security benefit. And if they mark the wrong box, they might find themselves without income for a significant period of time because it's very difficult to deal with the social security system. And all those people who are involved in the work for the dole scheme know how rigorous it is. So when we look at class in Australian society, we can divide Australians into ruling class, which is about 1% of the population, investment class, which is about 8 to 9% of the population, working class, which is about 55% of the population, and people on social security benefits, which is about 35% of the population. So here we are. This is Australia in 2021. It's a good way to look at class because it gives us the ability to analyse what's happening in our society today. A very good way of looking at things that are happening in Australian society. At the same time, we have a problem. Australians have forgotten over the past four to five decades what the word public means. Public, of the people. The people. And for some reason, most Australians continue to believe that if something is public, it's inefficient, it can't deliver services. And what I mean by publicly is publicly owned. And the dilemma is, in Australia, as we've seen over the last four decades, during the privatisation phase, it, if things that are publicly owned do not belong to the people of Australia. They ultimately belong to the government of the day. And that's why the government of the day has been able to privatise so many essential services at both the state and federal level over the last 40 years both Labor and Liberal. And COVID-19 has highlighted how important it is to have public services to deal with essential issues. We've seen the privatisation of gas, electricity, telecommunications, airlines... The list goes on and on. We've seen attempts to partially privatise Medicare, partially privatise the public education sector. We've seen these attempts to put everything into the hands of the private sector. We've seen the debacle that has occurred in the aged care sector, and this is pre-COVID-19, regarding aged care in this country where most of aged care since the Howard era, when Mr Howard and his government removed patient-staff ratios to ensure, to maximise private returns and decrease services to the aged, aged care people, people in aged care facilities decrease services, we've seen the debacle that's occurred in what is essentially an public service. We've seen the same thing occur in the child care sector, where independent small child care centres have been squeezed out by large corporations. And every time we've seen the privatisation of public assets in this country, we haven't seen the flourishing of tens of thousands of businesses. What we've seen is corporations, three or four large corporations, dominating those fields and receiving taxpayers' money to provide those services. And the dilemma that we face as a society when we allow the private sector to provide services which could be provided by the public sector is multidimensional. 
It's multidimensional in terms of return for money. For every dollar given to a private organisation to provide an essential public service, 40 cents goes in administration costs. That's a minimum of 40 cents goes in administration costs and profits. So only 60 cents actually goes towards providing that service. And that's why in some states, organisations like a Transport Accident Commission and WorkCover, and even with the NDIS, what we are seeing is that the middle person, the private sector, is bypassed and the money goes directly to the beneficiary who then organises their own care and uses about 10% to do the paperwork and pay the superannuation that's necessary and has an extra 30% to spend on themselves. So by its nature, the only way that the private sector can make significant profits from providing an essential service is through the government financing the private sector. And with COVID-19, we've seen debacle after debacle after debacle breathless incompetence because the services that have been delivered, whether it's vaccination, whether it's testing, whatever it is, are basically controlled by the private sector. And during the second wave, where over 750 people died in Victoria, mainly in Melbourne aged care facilities, it was apparent that the public health system had no social and preventative arm in order to implement policies to restrict COVID-19. And we see this ad nauseum in the hotel quarantine debacles which continue ad nauseum in this country. So, 2021... It doesn't seem a pleasant time to be alive. You can be in debt all your life. Now let's look at the next thing I'm really interested in, I'm sure you're interested in, is why do we have to be in debt for a lifetime in order to own a home? Why are housing prices increasing and rents increasing during COVID-19 crisis when immigration has decreased to almost nothing? And what happens with low interest rates is that it's fundamentally different to what happens when we have high interest rates. Now, we all think high interest rates are bad and low interest rates are good. The dilemma is when the government creates money, which gives to the private banks to lend to you at a low interest, it opens the doors for investors to manipulate the housing market. Because the lower the interest rates, the more investors pour into the private housing market, the higher prices rise. The higher prices rise, the higher rents, the more amount of public money which is lost. But, you know, it's it's very easy to complain, you know. I don't want you to think I'm just sitting here complaining ad nauseum. I mean, we not only complain, what we're about is about providing solutions. And it's quite interesting how many of the solutions we've raised over the years are now becoming to be spoken about in a broader context. The first issue is and I keep harping on about this, it was essential because we should be the richest country in the world, the richest sovereign state in the world, which should be able to provide for all the basic needs and essential services of every citizen, permanent resident and guest in this country. We shouldn't have 700,000 children living in poverty. We shouldn't have 35% of the population living in a situation where they lead a hand-to-mouth existence. We shouldn't be living in a society with an educational apartheid where the private sector expands, the private education sector expands 
at the cost of the public education sector. We shouldn't be living in a situation where election after election politicians are elected who support a privatisation agenda. But we do. And people continue to vote for these people. Somehow thinking that this will resolve their issues. Well, it's not going to resolve your issues. In reality, it doesn't matter the colour of the boot that's on your neck. It's the boot that's on your neck which is the problem and that boot needs to be removed. Now, I'm not talking about revolutionary change, blood in the streets. That's very easy. Anybody can talk about that. Pie-in-the-sky garbage. I'm talking about changes which can come into effect through parliamentary legislation. Economic reform. Not revolutionary change, but economic reform. And you may find this funny for an anarchist to talk about reform, not revolutionary change. Now, obviously, to have revolutionary change, you need a mass movement. There is no mass movement in this country. There's no sniff of a mass movement in this country. Over the last few decades, we have, or the government of the day, through the one percenters, has been able to manipulate the system to such an extent that the chances of radical revolutionary change are non-existent, totally non-existent. Most people find they're treading water from the very day they take on a hex debt to the very day they die. They are treading water financially. They're paying off loans. Australia is the highest indebted per capita nation on the planet. We have one of the highest housing prices on the planet. That's right. That's the situation we find ourselves in. And we find ourselves in this situation because we, as a nation, I'm not blaming you individually, but we as a nation have swallowed the garbage that privatisation of public assets is good for the nation, that allowing a few corporations to dominate public activity is good for the nation, for allowing globalisation to become our predominant economic mantra is good for the nation, and to remove regulations which were put in place to protect working people is good for the nation. At the same time, legislation has been introduced through federal parliament which has whittled away and removed most rights that Australians believe they constitutionally enjoy. And that's the key word, believe. Because the Australian Constitution is a strange hybrid beast. When federation occurred, the six colonies had to vote to federate. In order for that to occur the Constitution was diluted to such an extent that there, are, there is no protection for the individual in the Australian Constitution from the arbitrary exercise of state power. And what's frightening is we are the only so-called liberal democracy which has no protection for the individual from the arbitrary exercise of state power. That means the state... Can you remove your so-called freedom of speech whenever it wants to? The state can remove freedom of assembly when it wants to. The state can remove freedom of association when it wants to because there's nothing in the Constitution which prevents it passing that type of legislation. And high court challenge after high court challenge has shown there is nothing in the Australian Constitution which protects the individual from the arbitrary exercise of state power. In 2021, when we rile against what's happening in Myanmar and China, we forget about what's happened in this country. It is illegal to strike in this country except outside an enterprise bargaining agreement period. And then you've got to jump through so many hoops. The ability to organise a strike are almost minimal. If you're involved in a wildcat strike, 
you can be fined $10,000 a day. If you're a member of the CFMEU, you have fewer rights than those individuals who were busted by the Federal Police and the FBI a few days ago for major criminal conspiracies. You have fewer legal rights. They don't have to answer questions. But we, if you're a unionist and you refuse to answer questions about a union meeting or some meeting you attended, you can be jailed. That's right. You can be jailed. You have fewer rights. So if you don't have the ability to strike, the ability to withdraw your labour, the ability to protest, the ability to exercise freedom of speech, in a wide context, you find yourself powerless. And that's what we've seen over the last four decades, is how rights and liberties have been removed and people have become powerless. So we're powerless politically, we're powerless economically, and what that leads to is a culture of acquiescence where we accept what's happening to us as normal. We accept the proposition that change, even reform in Australia, is impossible in 2021. When you hear stories about people who've got lots of assets legally minimising their tax to almost nothing because of this country's investment-friendly laws, and you hear people being pursued by the tax office for a few thousand dollars tax liability they're not able to pay, you begin to understand the nature of Australian society in 2021. And the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted the power the state is able to exercise. So, what are we going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Look, I can speak about it. I can get involved in things. You know, I'm the convener for public interest before corporate interest, convener for the Unexperienced Institute. I could go on and on, you know, the things I'm involved in. I'm involved in public housing struggles, and I'm sure you're involved in struggles too. But I think it's time that we brought these struggles together. It's time that we stopped thinking of ourselves as isolated human beings. It's time that we stop thinking that it's only issue-orientated politics that occur. And when you throw the climate emergency into the mix, you begin to realise how difficult the situation has become. So what are a few reforms? The first reform, and I make no apologies for this, is the nationalisation of this country's resources without compensation to the major players. They have enough money as it is. I'm sure they could live with a few, you know, billion dollars. I'm sure I could live with a few billion dollars. I'm sure you could live with a few billion dollars. So I make no apologies. Nationalise this country's resources. Use this country's resources for the welfare and the benefit of this country's people. First Nations people who were the original owners and the rest of us. Don't give our way, our resources, the right to exploit our resources to privately owned corporations who then share profits with shareholders. And if somehow you think your superannuation fund is going to help you in old age, think again. Over 50% of your superannuation fund is invested in the stock market. And sometimes the investment is good, and sometimes it's bad. And as we saw during the global financial crisis, some people's nest eggs disappeared overnight. So we should have a movement in this country which talks about putting this country's natural resources back in the hands of the people. Then if you want to lease it out to a private corporation to run it on your behalf and you get 80%, we get 80% of the profits and they get 20% of the profits... So be it. That's what they did in Norway, where 90% of profits from the North Sea oil went into a future fund which has over a trillion dollars in it for a population of less than 5 million. 
they kept the profits which were made from their resources in their hands. If we kept the profits which are made from iron ore, from coal, while it lasts the next 20 or 30 years, from bauxite, from uranium, from rare earth minerals, from gold, from silver, from copper, from lithium, and the list goes on and on, we would be the richest country in the world. We wouldn't have 700,000 children living in poverty. We wouldn't have one-third of the population living on Social Security benefits on a marginal income. We wouldn't have people working for 30 to 40 to 50 years to pay off a mortgage. We wouldn't have people paying 40 to 50% of their income on rent. We wouldn't have one-third of the population in insecure, part-time, poorly paid work. We would have an extraordinary country. But no, we decided to go the other way. We decided to give the right to develop these resources to private corporations who maximise their profits at the expense of the people who own these resources. First Nations people and ourselves. Extraordinary. Just extraordinary. What's another way of ensuring we have... I mean, this is a big ticket item. Maybe we're not able to fight back against the power of these large mining corporations. Maybe it's an impossible task. So what's other tasks we can look at? Which legislation can be passed tomorrow? Much simpler tasks, which could again help to resolve the inequalities we have in our society. Well, we've spoken about ad nauseum about a 1% stock market tax. Currently... If you own stocks and shares, you benefit You benefit through franking credits. The taxpayer gives the investor money for buying stocks and shares. You and I give the investor money. We could get rid of that tomorrow. We tried, the Labor government, the Labor opposition tried to minimise that rort. And what happened? They weren't re-elected because those in power exercised, uh, used their media mates in order to create confusion amongst the population. I had the ridiculous situation where a patient said to me, Joe, I said, yes. I said, I've changed my vote. I've been a Labor voter all my life, but I have changed my vote and I voted for the Liberal National Party at the last federal election. I said, oh, that's interesting. They said, I said, Why? And she said, I was frightened of losing my franking credits. Now, I'd known this person had survived on a disability support pension for over two decades. And I said to her, I didn't know you had any shares. She said, oh, no, I don't have any shares. And I said, well, why did you think that a policy to remove franking credits would create a problem for you? And she said, oh, I thought I would lose part of my pension payments, that franking credits went into my pension payments. So we had this propaganda out during the last federal election which frightened elderly people into changing the way they voted because they thought their pension payments were going to be reduced because the opposition was going to decrease the amount of franking credits that rich people were able to receive. So if if you pay a 1% stock market turnover tax, you don't have to wait till you sh- sell your stocks and shares before you, the government gets a little bit of taxation revenue. So every time a stock or share is bought and sold in this country, a 1% tax automatically flows into the federal treasury. Everything is computerised in the world stock markets today. It's very easy to set a computer program to ensure that 1% of every transaction goes directly to the Treasury. This is a small impost, but it means you don't have to wait till people sell their stocks and shares in order to reap some type of dividend. It means every time they buy a stock or share, every time they sell a stock or share, that you reap that dividend. You don't have to worry about them uh, offsetting their losses on the stock market and claim it as a tax deduction because every time they buy and sell a stock or share, it's a 1% dividend to the government of the day. 
and that would be about 120 to 150 billion dollars per year into the treasury. When you think that the taxation uh, take every year is around 950 billion to a trillion dollars, and the total economy is about two trillion dollars in this country, you begin to understand that 150 extra billion dollars, an extra 15% of income is a good deal of income. The second tax we are looking at, which obviously the G7 is beginning to look at, is a financial transaction tax. Now most corporations pay minimal taxation legally because the rules ensure they continue to pay taxation, minimal taxation legally because of their influence on Parliament, on their influence about re-election of various political parties, they can ensure ad nauseum that no political party will ever put up legislation that impinges on their profits. So 1% transaction tax means every time somebody buys something, 1% automatically goes to the government of the day. And you could raise another three to $400 billion every year with a 1% transaction tax on transactions. And that tax is not levied on the people who make the purchase, but is actually levied on the corporation which makes that particular purchase. And then, as we've seen the last few days, is changing the world economy to ensure that huge transnational corporations at least pay a minimal amount of tax. Now, you may have heard that in, that in the US of A, there have been some leaked taxation records and we've seen that billionaires are paying on average about 3.4% tax while the average US taxpayer pays about 15% tax. And the story is the same in Australia. But the average taxpayer here pays about 30% tax, while billionaires pay less than 2% tax. So don't think that what's happening in the USA is somehow different to what's happening in Australia today. So a 1% transaction tax, a 1% stock market turnover tax. And then you could remove small businesses from this by saying any firm that has a turnover of less than $10 million a year doesn't pay the 1% transaction tax. And that ensures that it's only the big players who dominate the marketplace, who pay that tax. Another piece of legislation which I think is exceptionally important, which could be passed through Parliament tomorrow, and as I said, this isn't revolutionary, this is simple garbage, and they have this legislation on the books in the United States of America, the home of private enterprise, private investment for private profit, is antitrust laws. What that means is, that if a corporation gets too big for its boots and manipulates and, and dominates a particular field of human endeavour, the government of the day can force that corporation to sell off parts of it until it's about it no longer dominates that particular field of human endeavour. And it's quite interesting that in Australia we don't have antitrust laws. There are no laws in place that allow governments to break down the power that monopolies are able to exercise. When you have a duopoly or two or three or four large corporations dominating a field of business, there is no real competition. Anybody who buys any petrol understands that. There is no real competition. So the introduction of antitrust laws, and again that's just a parliamentary majority in both houses of parliament, could have an important effect on competition in this country. Another area which we've looked at consistently over the years is public housing. Over the last 30 to 40 years, the concept of public housing has become more and more and more degraded. We've got to the situation in most states, especially in Victoria, which I'm familiar with, where public housing is limited to people in dire emergencies. And over the last 10 years, 
under the leadership of the Labor Party, we have seen the privatisation of the public housing sector as the prime responsibility of the state government. It wishes to wash its hands of the idea of providing public housing and turning over management of public housing and eventually the ownership of public housing to private corporations. Some are for profit, some are not for profit. Now, public housing was introduced after World War II for one very good reason. Men and women who'd sacrificed their lives to protect this country came back to this country and they were living in tents. And governments were forced to provide public housing. The original idea of public housing was very simple. It was to provide housing to people who didn't have the money to buy housing in the private sector. It wasn't about people who were facing dire emergencies. It was about people who didn't have the money or the deposit to buy private housing. Why was so much money invested in public housing in the 50s and 60s and 70s? Very simply, because public housing has some enormous benefits for the whole community, not just for the residents. I mean, the, the benefit to the residents is simple. Rent is fixed as a percentage of income. So if you're on a social security benefit, your rent is 25% of that social security benefit. It is not market rent. Obviously, if you earn a wage and you continue to live in public housing, it's 25% of that wage. And you may find that sooner or later, you have the deposit to move out of a public housing sector. The second thing public housing does, and this is more important than even providing secure accommodation, it provides a secure environment for children. It allows children to be brought up in a secure environment. What that means is they can go to the same schools, they can go to the same sporting clubs, they're not moving from house to house, having to reignite friendships, fall back in their school studies. And in the 80s, there was a program in Victoria which attempted to break the idea that public housing should be in uh, units, multi-level development units, that a spot purchasing program began where public housing was available, was spot purchased around the country around the state of Victoria. So public housing has some extraordinary benefits. It provides secure accommodation. It provides accommodation as a percentage of income. It provides it can provide secure housing. It ensures that crime levels decrease because people are in secure housing. It means that you don't see people in the streets, homeless, and all the health problems associated with homeless. It ensures that there is competition between the private and public housing sector. One of the main reasons private houses have increased in price extraordinary increase in price over the last 20 to 30 years is directly attributable to the fact that the public housing sector has been starved of funds and has been privatised. There is no competition in the marketplace between the private and public housing sector. So if there's no competition, private houses continue to increase in price, rents continue to increase, investors enter the market because they can actually get a tax advantage through negative gearing, and they dominate the market. If there is a strong public housing sector, not only do you provide secure, safe uh, environment for people, you also put downward pressure on rents, private rents, because fewer people would need to live in private rental accommodation. Therefore, in order for investors to make a buck, they'd have to drop their rents. And as rents drop, at the lower end of the market, you may find that prices will also drop because investors will decide that the return 
especially the capital gains return, isn't worth the effort, isn't worth the effort, and they get out of the market and housing prices begin to drop. So there are many extraordinary benefits to a strong public housing sector. And that brings me to the last point I'd like to speak about. Now, we live in a society which is dominated by the concept of private investment for private profit. Dominated. Over the last 40 years, as I keep saying ad nauseum, we have seen that system dominate almost every aspect of living, not just economically, but socially and culturally. We have seen people accept the premise that there is no other way to deal with this issue. Well, there are other ways to deal with this issue. And one simple way is to build up the public sector. Because when you build up the public sector, you have competition. I'll give you an example. When the Commonwealth Bank was in public hands, it was in direct competition with the private sector and it prevented the banks from exploiting customers because people could always move to the Commonwealth Bank. Once the Commonwealth Bank was privatised, what happened is there was no competition in the private sector and prices went up and bank profits exploded. Now, we're not just about having a strong public sector and a strong private sector. We're also interested in creating or recreating a strong cooperative and collective sector. Because in a mixed economy, you need a strong private sector, a strong public sector, and a strong collective and cooperative sector. Now, people working in cooperatives and collectives do not get rich. They are not investors. They are investing their labour. They produce goods and services. They work collectively together. The problem in 2021 is there is no way that a cooperative or collective can get the necessary cash advances from financial institutions to set up that cooperative collective. And what we've been proposing for a long time is that 1% of superannuation contributions be directed towards creating cooperatives and collectives because cooperatives and collectives can and do soak up unemployment. They decrease unemployment. They give people the opportunity to work in a friendly environment collectively and cooperatively with other people. And in Australia, there is no history of a strong cooperative and collective sector. So in a cap- you can have a capitalism, private investment for private profit, be on the same page as a cooperative and, co- and collective economy and a public economy. This creates competition. No competition in a capitalist society. You get the creation of monopolies, duopolies, and the domination of activity, not just economic but socially and culturally, by unaccountable corporations whose major responsibility is to create ever-increasing profits for their major shareholders irrespective of the human, social and environmental costs. Now, I've been involved in a project for about five years and it's been a particularly difficult project. I'm the convener of public interest before corporate interest and it was set up in 2015 after a number of forays into the electoral system in order to create a political party which could be registered federally and eventually in each state. And the whole purpose of public interest before corporate interests is to ensure that the interests of the public, that's the many, are put the interests are put before the interests of unaccountable corporations. Now the big problem in two thousand and twenty one is we don't even have a conversation, let own let only a debate about how to best tackle these issues. We don't have a conversation. There is no mechanism in the corporate guild, in the corporate-owned media, in the government guild at ABC, and even in social media to get a coherent ideas across. 
Now, elections at the state and federal level provide an excellent opportunity by which to raise ideas in the community, ideas like a mixed economy, collectives and cooperatives, a 1% stock market turnover tax, a 1% transaction tax, a universal basic income, and the list goes on and on. We can look at social issues, relationships with this country's First Nations people, and the list goes on and on. And we can do this, and we can do this through a political framework. Public interest before corporate interest is not just a political party. It is also uses protest, vigils, petitions, etc. to raise and pursue specific issues. But unfortunately, the only thing they care about is when you start raining on their parade. And if there's one thing the established political parties hate, and that 1% is an investment class hate, is people raising these ideas during an election process. They hate it. And that's why we need to become a registered political party. We have a funny system in this country. You have to register. You need 500 members on the electoral roll before you can apply for registration. Normally you need 550 just to make sure that everybody is on that thing. So currently, public interest before corporate interest has... 452, possibly 53 members. We need another 97. And the way things are going, we will not be registered as a federal political party before the next federal election. There seems to be a lack of interest in people about joining another political party. Now, the fact is that if you're registered as a federal political party, you can just stand people in any electorate you like as long as you pay the deposit. You don't have to go through all the rigmarole that independents have to go to because you're registered as a federal political party. It gives you advantages. You don't have to wait for a federal election. You can be involved in a by-election anywhere in this country. You can raise ideas. And even if you get 1% to 2% of the vote, which is what we expect at this early stage, you can still influence who, which candidate is elected because we have a preferential system. And many marginal electorates where federal elections are held, it's that difference of 1% to 2% which makes a difference about who is elected and who isn't. So think about it. If you wish to join, you can join us by going to pipsy.net. Download the application form, pibci.net. Haven't got a printer? Haven't got a computer? You can always leave a message on 0439. 0439- 395489 and I'll send you out an application form. You can always write to me at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. You'll be listening to this special edition of the Anarchist World this week. Currently, I'm at the end of my radio phone session on Community Radio 3CR. I'm trying to raise $15,000 for Community Radio Station 3CR. For all our other listeners around Australia, courtesy of the Community Radio Network, I've been able to pre-record this program. Next week, We'll be back to the analysis of what's going on in our world today. Now, if you're interested in Facebook, well, Facebook pages, Joseph Toscano, Toscano for the Public. You can, as I said before, YouTube, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest, uh, web pages, pipsy.net, anarchismedia.org, and the list goes on and on. But ultimately, ultimately, change comes through people taking action. If you don't take action, the possibility of change is minimal. It's time to think about becoming part of a wider movement. Ultimately, what happens in this country, what ideas are discussed, what comes to the fore, despite the overall censorship of new ideas in this country, is dependent on your participation. Thank you for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. Listen in to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station via the Community Radio Network next week. Next week, it'll be normal programming as usual. Thank you once again for listening to this special edition for our interstate listeners of the Anarchist World this week. Evil minds.
Friends at Plot Destruction Sorcerer of Death Construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else Anarchist World this week Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse 10am every Wednesday Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events Brainwash minds. Oh, larger. Did you enjoy listening to this podcast? 3CR is a community radio station, and you, the listener, are part of that community. Right now, it's our Radiothon, and we need you to pitch in with a few dollars to keep the station going. We can't do it without you. It's easy. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your donation really matters. Help support community-powered podcasts for another year.